It's Friday, December 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We are seeing coronavirus continue to spread across the country. Hospitalizations and deaths are also on the uptick. And doctors and nurses are caught in the middle with treating the sick and people who still think the virus isn't as bad as some make it seem. Some healthcare workers call it COVID denial. And on top of the physical and mental demands of the job, they say this makes it harder for them to provide care. Sarah Kraus, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more on this extra challenge healthcare workers are facing. Next, we are in the holiday shopping season, and since the pandemic has changed the way everything is done right now, most people are shopping online, and it's making it extra difficult to get those hot items right now. Looking for a PS5 or a new Xbox? Good luck with that. Grinch bots are grabbing them all up. Automated programs are beating you to the punch for the top sneakers, toys, and electronics that are sold online. Many experts say that retailers need to do more to slow this activity down, but the bots are always improving. Teresa Carr, columnist at undark.org, joins us for how Grinch bots are ruining everything. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Basically, what they described are treating patients who are seriously ill in the hospital as part of their day job and then going home and either in the line at the grocery store or through family or friends and family hearing from people who think the virus is a hoax or just not as serious as public health officials have said it is. And they say that that sort of disbelief on top of months of the physical and mental demands of caring for very sick patients during the pandemic is frustrating. Joining us now is Sarah Krause, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks for having me. We're unfortunately seeing cases of coronavirus rise, hospitalizations rise, deaths rise. We're we're really hitting a bad part of this pandemic all over again. And one of the things that we always like to check in on is our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare workers. It's been a tough go for them. You know, they're the ones on the front lines dealing with the patients all the time and helping people get better. And we've done stories in the past before already on the podcast about the burnout that the doctors and nurses are facing. Some of them are retiring early, all that jazz. But right now, you wrote an article, Sarah, about how some of this coronavirus disbelief is really affecting them. You know, it's hard for them to go there every day, but still constantly hear people say that it's not as bad as it seems or it's a hoax, et cetera, et cetera. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about some of the conversations you were having with doctors and nurses about this. So I spoke with several doctors and nurses across the country, and basically what they described are treating patients who are seriously ill in the hospital as part of their day job and then going home and either in the line at the grocery store or through family or friends and family hearing from people who think the virus is a hoax or just not as serious as public health officials have said it is. And they say that that sort of disbelief on top of months of the physical and mental demands of caring for very sick patients during the pandemic is frustrating and draining. And the overarching is that if the broader public is not taking the pandemic and the associated risks seriously. Does it risk furthering the virus's spread? I mean, it's a weird situation. Uh, We see it a lot playing out in the media, obviously, how bad it is. We see our local elected officials talking about it constantly, imposing new restrictions and lockdowns. And that's probably fuels some of the frustration on, on the part of people not wanting to go through that. You know, obviously, huge economic effects that are going on because of it is hard for a lot of people. And despite these huge numbers, there's a lot of people that have not gotten this. And maybe some people don't know somebody that might have gotten it. So it might fuel some of that skepticism. They said, you know, some of this 
in their sort of groups of family and friends is rooted in the fact that there were parts of the country that shut down before the virus was widely circulating there. So there's this frustration from economic losses, whether it be a job or just instability in a person's household financial situation that contribute to this frustration as shutdowns continue, as the numbers continue to swell. You had a story about a nurse in El Paso, Texas, who had a patient in early November wheeling him out of the intensive care unit, and he was still saying that it wasn't that bad and that the media was exaggerating it. She said that she took that time to say that he was the only person that she had treated that day that was able to converse with her, you know, and that also the patients that she was treating are the most severe that she had seen in 10 years as a nurse. So she said that in that situation, the patient changed their mind. Other healthcare professionals that I talked to said at times they faced more of an uphill climb in convincing those around them that this is real. And one of the things that came up repeatedly in the conversations I had with healthcare workers and what they hear from the communities around them or patients is there have been conflicting messages around the merits of mask wearing early on. And because the virus continues to spread now, there's not only pandemic fatigue, but there's a little bit of whiplash in terms of what measures should I or should I not be taking? Is it actually making a difference? Yeah, that might have been one of the biggest drawbacks. I think that the CDC was involved early on when the recommendations were bouncing back and forth. And, you know, they talk a lot about uh, in your conversations with them, you know, misinformation. And they hope that, you know, the quality of care doesn't go down. And a lot of them are nervous. We're getting to the point where vaccines are going to be improved. And public polling out there says that a lot of Americans don't want to take the vaccines for a variety of reasons. Right. And that's one of the many sort of knock on effects that they described as fearing in this. One is, you know, if people don't think there is merit to mask wearing and other mitigation measures that they won't do it, the virus will continue to spread. But also when a vaccine is available, these feelings will contribute to some Americans not getting vaccinated because they didn't think it was serious in the first place or they have distrust of the vaccine. Yet another knock on effect from it was the concern about overcrowding, having so much of a burden if this continues to spread on the healthcare system that you run out of beds with the ability to care not only for COVID patients, but also sort of routine, elective, but still important procedures or in remote parts of the country where there's maybe, you know, a main trauma center and then that serves as a hub that if that's still a COVID patient that can't accept the normal car accident injuries or other injuries that might come through that then must be treated in smaller facilities that have less experience doing so. So they sort of describe this ripple effect that has a lot of different components to it. Yeah, on the vaccine front, one of the latest Gallup polls said about 42% of Americans say that they wouldn't get vaccinated. I don't like to hear that type of stuff, especially considering how hard people have been pushing for the vaccines to get through the process and everything. I think this kind of encapsulates a lot of this. One of the nurses you spoke to said, hey, I check your cholesterol and show you a number and you believe us. But when it comes to this, you're not believing us now. And that's got to be frustrating for these healthcare workers that are in the trenches working on this. And you also mentioned that there's a lot of local public health meetings that some of these nurses are taking their time to go to as well. So they're not just treating patients in the hospitals. They're also going to these public meetings to help get the word out. And even then, still, there's back and forth on it. I described a meeting in Idaho where a local public health board invited both doctors from a local hospital system as well as two other individuals who advocated for unproven treatments and made assertions that there's no evidence that masks prevent the spread of COVID-19, which is incorrect. And so the doctors that I spoke with who were at that meeting, you know, sort of spoke about frustration, feeling like they are up against 
conflicting and incorrect messages on top of their day job of caring for patients. And, you know, one of them sort of described it feels like a parallel universe when you see people dying of a virus or you see a virus having longer term complications for some patients at your day job. And then you go home or in your surrounding community. It's not taken seriously. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's very hard. I know there's been a lot of politicization throughout this whole process of the pandemic. And even in my own circles, you know, I heard a lot of people saying, oh, you know, this is all going to go away after the election. It's quite the contrary. It's actually gotten worse very recently. And you see today we have record hospitalizations as of yesterday, a record new case count, more than 200,000 deaths are continuing to climb. And so I think one of the challenges here is you have this continued spread. And in some parts of the country, the worse it's been yet on top of many months of lockdowns and fits and starts. So you have this sort of frustration and desire among a lot of people to get back to normal and find a way to live with it. You know, I think from the doctor's perspective and nurse's perspective, you're also coming off many months of pretty intense shifts caring for sick people. And so um, I think we're at a moment where some of those frustrations are bubbling up. Sarah Krause, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's only two PS5s and then six Series Xs. So if you are here for that specifically and you are not number one through eight line, I am sorry. If you want a Nintendo Switch, we have plenty of those. Joining us now is Teresa Carr, science journalist and columnist at Undark.org. Thanks for joining us, Teresa. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about the holiday buying season right now. It's been an, uh, an especially tough go for a lot of people because of the pandemic. A lot of traditional shopping in stores is not really being done. Most people are doing things online. And for some of those hot items, some of those things, you know, like the PS5, the Xbox Series X, the new gaming consoles, it has been a tough go to buy those. People have been parked out on Walmart's website, Target's website endlessly refreshing, trying to get something to no avail. Obviously, there's a lot of demand for this, so there's a lot of people. But the other thing that we know that's going on is what people call Grinch bots. People set up bots to automatically buy these things, and it really leaves the normal consumer with no hope. This has been going on for a long time in the fashion industry with high-end sneakers. I've run into these problems on all ends of this. That's why it interested me so much. So, Teresa, give us a quick rundown. What are these bots? What do they do? And how is it such a widespread problem right now? Bots are automated computer programs. And they're set, like you said, to go in and anytime that there's a high demand product with a limited supply, there's going to be a secondary market for that. And as you said, this started kind of years ago with sneakers. Although if you look back in time, you can think this is like an age old thing. You know, it's a supply and demand thing. If you have a hot item, somebody's going to want to get it for as low a price as possible and resell it. So that's exactly what's going on here, except they're using automated computer programs to do it. When I say they, I said these bot operators, these secondary sellers. So these bots go in and, you know, when something hot's going to drop, like a PS5 or the new Xbox, these bots are waiting. And, you know, as much as the cybersecurity experts told me that it's as much as 90% of the traffic on that website when there's going to be one of these hot items coming. And remember, wow. the manufacturers and the retailers 
often announce ahead of time. They say, we're dropping this at 3 p.m. on this day. I think the Walmart dropped the PS5s on November 12th. And, you know, all the consumers are waiting. 90% of the bots are waiting too, or 90% of the traffic are bots <laughs> and that they are, are waiting. And they are definitely faster than you. I was one of those people. Oh, they're way faster. Yeah, I was yeah, one of those yeah, people yeah, yeah. waiting in that line trying to do that, yeah, to no avail. You don't stand a chance. I mean, you know, I think some consumers get through. You know, cybersecurity experts told me in a situation like that, you know, as much as two-thirds of the purchases may go to bots. So there is some cybersecurity software on a lot of these sites that kind of like eliminate some of these bots, but some of these bots are so sophisticated, they do get through. And yeah, when it's you versus something that's automated, that's going through in milliseconds, and you're trying to like, (laughs) even if you've got your credit card information ready to go and you're auto-filling, you don't stand a chance. Yeah. And as you mentioned, this has been going on for quite some time. People can just think to when collectibles go on sale, concerts is a huge thing. And then you see the scalpers trying to sell them back again. This has been going on for some time. And for the retailers themselves, there really isn't a lot of incentive to stop this. I mean, the products that they're selling are getting sold regardless. So they're making that money. So their willingness to stop it maybe isn't always there. But a lot of these experts that you spoke to say that they are probably some of the first people in line that should be doing something to stop this. I mean, they would have the most amount of power in stopping it. Certainly, you know, and and remember, I talked to cybersecurity experts who are also selling services, protecting websites. So I think, you know, in some ways they would say they need another level of security in there. And certainly retailers, there are some things they could do. You know, they don't necessarily have to announce exactly what time. They don't have to hype something to the extent they do. And that might discourage some of the bots that are sitting there waiting. And the other thing they do, by the way, is sometimes go in and hack into the site ahead of time. So they've already got the web address or the URL of the product even before it's made public. So they're already a step ahead of you as soon as that product becomes available. So there are some things retailers can do, and they can amp up their security there's a disagreement about how motivated they are. I mean, there is this fine line between like discouraging your customers, which you, you know, particularly I think smaller retailers are very interested in keeping a loyal customer base. There's that fine line between that and actually building demand, you know, hyping a product, making it exciting to get the newest sneaker or the PS5 or the newest collectible thing. So there's a tension there. And I can't exactly speak to the issue of how motivated they are. When I've reported on this, the retailers, the major retailers I reached out to did not want to talk to me about it. But yeah, certainly one could think that maybe they're not motivated. And I've had security experts say that they maybe are not completely motivated to stop this because they are selling out very quickly. Part of the problem is that the bots are always getting better at disguising themselves. Tell me a little bit about some of the technical things that go on in a website and how these bots work around it. Because I know a lot of people... When you're logging into something, you see that CAPTCHA response, you know, the little I'm not a robot puzzle kind of thing. Basically, how many fire hydrants are in this picture? Things like that. How do they work around all those? If you've been doing this for a while, you've noticed those CAPTCHAs have have gotten a little bit harder and trickier over time, right? I don't know if you remember reading wavy words, for example. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And and, yeah, and so over time, we've been teaching the CAPTCHAs to get better. We as consumers have been, you know, working on those and machine learning. AI is going on in the background and the CAPTCHAs have gotten more and more sophisticated, but so have ways to, you know, the machine learning used to get around those. Now, One way to get around it, I will tell you, is pretty brute force, and that's just to quickly grab the catcher, 
send it, you know, usually outside the U.S. to what's called a captcha farm. And you have like a whole team of people who are very good at solving these almost instantaneously and send it back. I am rolling my so, eyes right now hearing that. I hate to right, hear that right. right now. Yeah, but you think about it. I mean, that's probably fairly cheap labor, and that's a very inexpensive way to do this. So when you hear like all the sophisticated AI and stuff, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's brute force that just sends it out to Capture Farm, sends it back, and goes on through the process. But also, I think I cite in my um, story in Undark, you know, there was a study in 2016 where the researchers showed that 70% of the CAPTCHAs that were widely used at that time, AI, just off-the-shelf tools, not anything sophisticated they did, just off-the-shelf tools could easily solve those. So the bots are way past picking out traffic lights and things. (laughs) You still have to do that because it does discourage some of the less least sophisticated bots, and that's probably the most of the traffic. So you are cutting down on a lot of bot traffic by going through those extra steps. But for the ones that really want to get through, they're just as sophisticated as that. It's an arms race. So the bot detection or protection software keeps getting better and uses these machine learning tools to look and, and see that the activity on the site looks like the way the mouse is moving, the way you're clicking through, looks like what a human would do. And then the bots learn to mimic human behavior and it just keeps going. It's an arms race with no end in sight. What about legislation to stop some of this? We've seen things, uh, you know, try, maybe not with complete success, but things like ending robocalls or, you know, do not call registries, things like that. What about something geared specifically to this? I I guess there were some members of Congress that introduced a bill, a Stopping Grinch Bots Act, that would try to help some of this. Has any of that got any traction? So Stopping Grinch Bots has been introduced, I think, three years in a row, most recently in 2019. And the Democratic representative from New York, Paul Tonko, is behind that. And that has not been passed yet. He was also behind a 2016 bill that did get passed on stopping ticket scalping. So there is a precedent for that. That one was passed in 2016. I can't tell you that it's had a huge effect on ticket scalping. I think it's had some effect. I know that the Federal Trade Commission is charged with enforcing that, and they have not yet taken any enforcement actions for that Ticket Scalping Act. So that's in four years. There's been a couple of state attorneys general in New York and Washington that I know have reached settlements with ticket brokers. So, you know, it's maybe done a little. The hope is that if this Stopping Grinch Box Act actually gets passed and maybe in the coming year, that that would maybe take down some of the big operators because a lot of these operators are in the open. The resale market is, is in the open. You can buy the products, let's say the sneakers or whatever, but you can also buy the bots. I mean, I can go and buy software if I want to like shop for sneakers myself and I want to use these bots to do that, I can do that. Or if I want to set up a resale business myself, I can do that. So this operates very much in the open. So there is the thought that if there was a law passed, that that kind of practice would be discouraged at the very least, if not some of the illegal activity that goes on. Teresa Carr, science journalist and columnist at undark.org. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This was fun. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.